I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37 for our morning scripture. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I've been on vacation two weeks ago. So this past week I went to a conference. So therefore I asked a friend of mine to share with you this morning. His name's Steve. So when I went on vacation, it was part work, but not with the church. Part of it was for New Day for Children to meet with the girl that is at Azu Pacific University right now. And so been meeting with her and it's been great that this gift fair that we're hosting, we kind of put a condition on it that we will host the gift fair on a condition. And the condition was this, that 10% of those proceeds go to something. And we don't care what it goes to, but you guys tell us what you want it to go to, and that's where we'll send those proceeds. But we want to give back. We don't just want to host something, and, you know, that's it. So they decided on New Day for Children on their own. So that's where the money's going. And so this girl that I met with, she's actually doing okay academically, but socially she's had some challenges. So I met with her. I met with her parents. She's a first generation from her family to ever go to college. And it's really, really great, and she's an awesome girl. Please continue to pray for her. She has her challenges from just the trauma that she's suffered. She's been trafficked since she was 13, and so she's 17 now. And so now she's at APU. So if any of you want to join me in supporting her in terms of prayer, and also finals are going to be coming up and Christmas is coming up, so my wife and I are coming up with this kind of cool little care pack that we're going to send her because being first generation, her folks probably aren't keen to how college works and sending care packages and all that. So, you know, top ramen, hot chocolate, you know, that, that stuff. Jolly Ranchers, you know, whatever, those types of things. We're going to put a care pack together and we're going to ship it out to her when finals and things comes closer. Well, here's Steve. Steve's from the East Coast. Good friend of Bruce and Connie Olson's. And so, Steve, come on up. Thank you, Albert. I've never had to speak at one of these things, so this is exciting new experience for me. Well, as Albert said, primary connection here is through Bruce and Connie. If you've never met Bruce and Connie Olson, I would encourage you to take some time to do that this morning. They're pretty great. Where are they? Are they in here right now? Oh, there's Connie over there, and then Bruce is way over here. So, <laughs> anyway, if you haven't met those guys, you should totally meet them. I met Connie. Many, many years ago, when we were freshmen in college at the University of the Pacific, we lived in the honors dorm together, because we're that cool. <laughs> and I'm uh, pretty sure Connie thought I was like the goofiest white dude that she had ever met in her entire life that year when we first met. And one of the things I appreciate about Connie is that she's the only person, well, not the only person, probably one of like three people in the world who call me by my actual name, which is Steven. So I always appreciate that about Connie. And then uh, Bruce transferred to Pacific a couple years after we had started. I'll never forget one of my first interactions with Bruce. If you know him, you might appreciate this story. If you don't know him, this will give you some good context for Bruce. We ran into each other on campus pretty early on in his time there, and he was wearing a tie. And Pacific is a classy place, don't get me wrong, over there in Stockton. But in the year 2000, 
Nobody wore ties, not even ironically. And so I was like, who is this dude wearing a tie? So I ask him and he's like, I have a test today. Which like to him is the most obvious thing in the world that I have a test today, so I would wear a tie. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> I'm not gonna be friends with this guy. And of course I was totally wrong about that. We ended up becoming really good friends. We love the Giants, big win last night. It's good to share that with Bruce. There we go. We're in each other's weddings, and Bruce and Connie have been really good friends of mine for a long time now, and so just really appreciate their friendship and the ways that they've supported me and my family over the years. So yeah, my name is Steve. I am married. Uh, my wife Amy is great with child. We are expecting our second kiddo here in a couple of weeks. And so she was not able to make the trip out. There should be some pictures coming up here on the screen, though, of our family. Amy and I have been married for about seven years. We have a two-year-old daughter named Marina, and she is a goofball like her dad. And so we have a good time with her. She's been a really big blessing to our family. My wife is an incredible woman for a whole bunch of different reasons, but primarily because she wholeheartedly embraces what it means to follow Jesus as an adventure. And so it's been great to adventure with her over the last several years. We're in Boston currently. Uh, we moved out there right after we got married so that Amy could go to grad school. She's a physical therapist, graduated from Boston University in 2010. And we've stayed out there for the last several years to do ministry to college students. I don't know if you know this about Boston, but there's 300,000 college students that live in this city during an academic year. And so there's this really unique concentration of students there. You've probably heard of some of the schools in Boston. There's this one called Harvard another one called MIT, and then there's like 35 other campuses. So there's just a ton of students there, and we've really enjoyed being able to do ministry in that context for about five or six years now. So anyway, we're really grateful for this season of life that we've been in, and again, just thank you guys for welcoming me this morning and for allowing me to share with you. Albert said that I could talk about whatever I wanted, and so <laughs> that's fairly open-ended. And so I kind of struggled with that a little bit because I do kind of like some clarity and some direction, but I thought I would share a couple of thoughts about one of the things that I personally struggle with quite a bit. So I'm going to talk about our words. And if you're like me, you probably have had these moments where you maybe have regretted something that you said, or there are things that come out of your mouth that afterwards you're like, wow, where did that come from? And that doesn't really represent me or who I want to be at all. And so again, I want to talk about our words, what I would like to call the secret life of words. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew 5. That is the passage that we'll be in for a little bit here. And as you're doing that, and before we really dive in, I want to pray. So pray with me. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to be able to gather in a beautiful setting like this on a Sunday morning the ability to sing and to worship and to be with people who are trying to figure out what it means to follow you. God, I pray this morning that we would think about what our words mean and how we use them and the ways in which they can be destructive, but also the ways in which our words can bring life and healing to people. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin with the premise that our words create worlds. Words can create worlds. Scripture opens in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible begins 
with this description of the universe, of the world, as this chaotic void. And into this void, we're told God speaks. There's this repeated pattern in Genesis 1, and God said, and there was light, and God said this, and this thing came into being, and God said, and God said, and God said. God's words literally create the world. Fast forward in time to the period of time after Jesus' death and resurrection, and his followers are trying to figure out and sort out what all of that means, and some of them begin to write down accounts of his life. One of his closest disciples, a guy named John, wrote one of these accounts, and he lifts a lot of this imagery and language from Genesis 1 to begin his description of Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and then he describes how the Word was a part of bringing the world into being. Jesus, the Word of God in the flesh, speaking the world into existence. Words create worlds. Words are powerful and creative, and words, in some mysterious, deep, profound way, are connected to the divine. Back to Genesis 1, we're told that human beings are created in God's image. In some way, we reflect this image of God to the world. One of the most important ways, I think, that we reflect this image of God is in our use of language. So let me say it again. Our words create worlds. We can use our words to do all kinds of interesting and amazing things. Sometimes we use language, we use our words simply because it's fun. There's sort of a pleasure and joy in language. I have a two-year-old daughter, so I read a lot of Dr. Seuss, and I thought I would do a selected reading <laughs> from Dr. Seuss this morning. This is, there's a wocket in my pocket. <laughs> Did you ever have the feeling there's a zamp in the lamp, or a neek in the sink, or a wazit in the closet? Sometimes I'm quite certain there's a jerton in the curtain, and when I hear a talk, I know it's locks behind the clock. And that zilf up on the shelf, I have talked to her myself. I like the zabel on the table and the gear beneath the chair, but the bofa on the sofa acts as if he doesn't care. I like the g-lean on the ceiling and the zower in the shower and the nubbards in the cupboards. I do like them a lot. But that toothbrush on my toothbrush, well, some are nice, but he is not. The yeps on the steps are always fun to have around, and so are many, many other friends that I have found, like the teller and the neller and the geller and the deller and the beller and the weller and the zeller and the seller. There's the yaddle in the bottle, whom I do not wish to keep, but the zillow on my pillow always helps me fall asleep. There's a walket in my pocket by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I dare you to try to read that and not smile as you're reading it. Dr. Seuss is just fun. Language, words can be fun. There's this sort of pure linguistic joy that comes through in Dr. Seuss's books, and I think this is why we continue to read these books to our kids for the last 50 years, year after year after year. Language, words can just be fun. Sometimes we use words to transport us, take us to a particular place or a particular moment. Perhaps you've heard these words before. I want to run. I want to hide I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. Any of you two fans in the house? There's a few, all right. <laughs> even if you don't know that song, even if you've never heard that song, listen to those lyrics 
and immediately you go somewhere, right? It takes you to a particular place, takes you somewhere. Sometimes we use words because they capture a feeling. One of my favorite poets of all time is Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, this force for the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s. This is his poem, Justice. That justice is a blind goddess is a thing to which we black are wise. Her bandage hides two festering sores that once perhaps were eyes. This poem is almost brutal in how simple it is. In 26 words, he captures the feelings, the mood, the frustrations of African Americans in pre-civil rights America, the frustration of African Americans in 2014, if we're being honest, the frustrations of anyone who has longed for justice. Words can capture a feeling. Then, of course, there are those beautiful words that just build us up and give us life. Words like, thank you, great job today, I love you. Those words can fill our tanks and keep us going for weeks when we hear them. Words create worlds. But for all of the beautiful things that words can do through expression, through creativity, through affirmation, they can also be tremendously harmful. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We've probably heard that. Maybe we even said that at some point in second grade out on the playground. But we know, if we're being honest, we know it's not true. We know it's not true. Words can hurt. Words can wound. Words can kill. Now, you may be thinking, I've never killed anyone with my words. It's a good thing. You may also be thinking that those are some great examples of, you know, beautiful uses of the English language, but I'm no Dr. Seuss, I'm no Bono, I'm no Langston Hughes. And that may be true, but every single one of us is creating something with the words that we use. We are creating a world, a life, a character. We use thousands of words every day. And it's these words that reveal who we really are. And I think far too often we're just careless with the words that we choose. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin writes, we choose our clothes more carefully than we choose our words. We choose our clothes more carefully than we choose our words. So... There's this secret life to our words. And what I want to do this morning is pull back some of the layers, I think, that are around the careless words that we use. I want us to think about that a little bit so that we can examine their effects on us and on those around us. So again, if you have your Bible, I'd just like to read that passage one more time. This is in Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And it's Jesus speaking directly here. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So again, these are the words of Jesus, and they come right in the middle of this really long section of teaching. It's one of the longest continuous sections of teaching we have from Jesus in any of the accounts of his life. This section is oftentimes called the Sermon 
on the Mount, one of the most, again, famous teachings of Jesus. And if you read through this whole sermon, it can feel a little bit like Jesus is sort of all over the place. He'll have a bit on money and a bit on murder and then a bit about the religious rules of the day. And it's kind of like, how does this all fit together? You're kind of all over the place here, Jesus. What are you really trying to say? And I'm going to attempt to summarize that really quickly here for us. What Jesus is doing through all of these different bits is inviting us to see, is demonstrating that all of life is connected. All of these different things are connected. And his invitation throughout the whole sermon is to entrust all of life to him. He's making the case that the only way to live an integrated, non-anxious, wholehearted, loving life is to entrust everything to him. So this teaching about words, about oaths, about swearing on heaven, all these different things comes in the middle of this bigger invitation that he's extending to trust. Now the culture that Jesus is speaking into had a really difficult time with trust. It was a culture that took the rules very seriously, but I would say in sort of an adolescent kind of way. There was this endless search for the loopholes, kind of like how late can I break curfew without getting grounded? How far can I go until I like really get busted? Later on in Matthew's account of Jesus, Jesus addresses this search for the loophole and even this idea of how we use our words and the oaths that we take to kind of point out the folly in this system. So this is from Matthew 23. And he's speaking here directly to the religious rulers of the day. Matthew 23, verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. Which, by the way, is a great way to jump into a conversation with someone in authority. (laughs) Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Now, if you had a a little bit of difficulty following what Jesus is saying there, that's okay, because that's kind of the whole idea of this system. Let's see if we can try to make a little bit of sense of all this. Let's say that... Hopefully this isn't like cut too deeply for anyone here. But let's say that I'm really confident that the Oakland A's are actually going to make it to the World Series next year. All right? And so I'm so confident that 2015 is the A's year that I'm willing to put something on the line. So I go to you and I say, the A's are going to the World Series next year. I'm going to put 1,000 goats on this wager. And you, being a good pessimistic baseball fan, say, sure, (laughs) I'll take you up on that bet. But how will I know? How can I trust you? How will I know that you will come through on this and actually give me the goats if the A's do not make the World Series? And so I would say back to you, especially if I were a clever person, well, I swear on the temple. I swear on the temple. I will give you 1,000 goats if the A's don't make the World Series in 2015. And so we shake on it or whatever, and we go our separate ways in the Next season unfolds, and lo and behold, the A's fail once again to make the World Series. And so, and so you come to me, and you say, I want my goats. And I say, oh, yeah, I remember that bet. But I only swore to you on the temple. I didn't swear on the gold of the temple. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and keep those goats. And, again, in that system, legally, there was nothing you could do about that. They had created this complex, confusing system that was all about abusing 
the power of words. It was all about looking spiritual and trustworthy without ever having to back it up. It was a system that was built on this lack of trust. So now back to the Sermon on the Mount, back to our original text. When Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, don't even swear on a hair of your head. What he is saying is do not use your words, especially spiritual words, to weasel your way out of commitments, to prop yourself up, to make yourself look better. Words, Jesus says, are not for filling gaps in your character. Words are not for filling gaps in your character. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't taken up any bets. I haven't sworn any oaths on the temple or anything like that recently. But this kind of stuff happens all the time. We do this kind of stuff all the time. We manipulate language. We look for loopholes. We manufacture excuses. So here are a few different ways I think that this shows up in our sort of modern context. And again, this is coming from a place of confession. This is coming from a place of these are some things that I struggle with all the time. So the first thing I would say is there are some of us who are spin doctors. Spin is all about managing our image. This is calling up your wife and saying, hey, you don't need to worry, but I can't find our daughter, but everything's going to be fine. Okay, bye. (laughs) Not that that's ever happened. Spin is distorting reality. It's, I was only going 10 miles over the speed limit. I was only a few minutes late. My phone died. The dog ate my homework. This is swearing on the temple, but not on the gold of the temple kind of stuff. Because, no, you were speeding. No, you were late. No, you forgot. Don't blame it on your phone. You just forgot. You don't even have a dog. (laughs) Spin is also, I think, a way that we try to soften a blow for other people. This is that conversation where you really need to say something to someone else. Hey, that thing that you did, that really hurt me. But you sort of sandwich it or couch it in all this flowery language. And so at the end of it, the person is like, are we best friends or did I do something wrong? I'm not really sure. The secret life of spin is that it obscures the truth. It obscures the truth and it undermines our credibility and becomes like the old fable, the boy who cried wolf. There are only so many times you can spin reality before no one is going to listen to you, before no one believes you. And then there's this tragic moment when you really do actually have something to say, only there's no one to hear you out. So there's the spin doctor and then there's the hype machine. The hype machine is probably the one that I struggle with the most. I love a lot of things. I love to read books. I love movies. I love to eat good food. I love different bands. And when I get really excited about one of them, I love to tell people about them. Oh, dude, you have to read this book. It's going to change your life. Oh, you got to go see that movie. It's it's the most unbelievable movie ever. You got to listen to this band. They're the best. Greatest band of all time. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with sharing your passions with people. But when I really get my hype machine going, I can rob people of the joy of discovery, of having an authentic experience with something, or with someone. I think this is really kind of the big issue here. This can actually be really dangerous in community. Let's say you know person A should really get to know person B, and so you spend a lot of time with person A talking about person B. Oh man, this guy is so cool, like so wise, you got to hang out with them. 
He's got a really great record collection, like whatever that is, and you're kind of building this person up. And then finally, person A and person B get a chance to hang out and be together, and the whole time they're trying to navigate around this mountain of expectations that you have created. So the secret life of hype is that it can create unreasonable expectations, it can foster manipulation, and it can run counter to community and authentic relationships. Another way that this shows up is what I would call the Facebook maybe-er. I work with college students, so I'm discovering every day, actually, that Facebook is not cool anymore. But I still think this is a really apt metaphor for our culture. I cannot tell you how many events we have planned where, let's say, there's 50 people invited and five people say yes. And they're the five people that would show up no matter what. Probably didn't even need to invite them. They're going to be there anyway. And then there's five people that say no, and then there's 40 that say maybe. And I don't know if you've ever had to plan something for a gathering of people, but there's a really big difference between planning for five and planning for 45. And it's like, come on, guys. Little commitment one way or the other would be awesome. I think this is probably the thing that our culture struggles with the most. We want to keep our options open as wide as possible for as long as possible, and so maybe is our default response to just about everything. The secret life of maybe, though, is that we're never committed to anything. We never put ourselves on the line. We protect ourselves from hurt. But we also, in saying maybe to everything, cut ourselves off from experiencing freedom. My favorite movie of all time is this movie called High Fidelity. If you haven't seen it, you should. It'll change your life. Actually, I do want to put a disclaimer on this. This is kind of a gritty film. Just be aware of that. If you do go out and watch it, you're like, the pastor said that I should watch this movie. It's like, mm. Anyway, it's great, but it has some gritty bits in it. The movie follows this character named Rob. It's played by John Cusack. And when the film opens, Rob has just broken up with his longtime girlfriend named Laura. And this breakup sort of sends him into an existential crisis, and he goes through this journey of trying to figure out why all of his relationships fail. And this is a little bit of a spoiler, so I apologize. But there's a moment towards the end of the film where he's finally hit rock bottom. He's sitting on this bench waiting for a bus in the pouring rain, soaking wet, and he has this epiphany. He looks right at the camera and he says, I finally realized why it never worked with Laura and me. I always had one foot out the door. I guess it made more sense to commit to nothing. Keep my options open, and that's suicide by tiny, tiny increments. And I found that seemed to be particularly convicting in my own life, but I also think that that is maybe one of the best descriptions of our culture. We're committing suicide by tiny, tiny increments because we've committed to nothing. This is the secret life of maybe. And the result of all of this, of the spin doctor, of the hype machine, of the Facebook maybe-er, is that we've created a world that is cluttered with careless words, muddied by spin and hype and endless maybes, and then we wonder and we worry about why our lives lack direction, why our lives lack clarity. Now here's the real secret life of our words. When we are settled in our speech, when our yes really means yes and our no really means no, we'll find that we have deeper relationships and greater credibility and trust and that we are 
living in freedom. This is the invitation of Jesus in this text and in this Sermon on the Mount. When we fully entrust all of life to God, we are able to experience freedom. When we entrust our time, our money, our jobs, our dreams, our relationships, our families, and even our words, we find that we have a whole life fully entrusted to God, a life that is peaceful, that is free from worry and anxiety, that is free from the need to add words, to fill the gaps in our character. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him and to live in the simplicity and clarity and freedom that comes from having entrusted all of life to him. When we step into this freedom, not only do our words have greater meaning and depth, but they can actually be redemptive. Our words can create a world that is healing for other people. Proverbs 12, 18 says it this way, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We can create worlds that entrap us, that erode our integrity and our character, or we can create a world that is not only good for us, that not only brings integrity and wholeness to us, but a world that creates space for other people to find safety and peace and restoration. And you don't have to be Bono or Langston Hughes to do this. Jesus' invitation is to just let our yes be yes and our no, no. And this is something any of us can do. So a couple of questions here as we wrap up. Have you entrusted your whole life to God? This is obviously a huge question, but one I think that we're invited to think about this morning. Have we accepted Jesus' invitation to entrust everything to him, to go all in, to say yes to a life fully entrusted to God? This, Jesus says, is the path to freedom. So the question is, will you take it? Will you take it? Second question is, have you examined how you use your words? Do you find yourself identifying with the spin doctor or the hype machine or the Facebook maybe or You put more care into choosing your clothes than you do into choosing your words. And then finally, and this may feel a little bit out of left field, but do you need to reconcile with someone? Saying yes and no is foundational to living in right relationship with each other. So is there a commitment you've been letting slide, a need to simply say yes to something in your life? And maybe the flip side of that is, have you been the victim of spin or hype or a lack of commitment and you simply need to say no to those things we read in the psalms keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies turn from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it so we end where we began words create worlds what kind of world are your words creating what kind of world are your words creating My hope and prayer is that each of us would give our lives fully to Jesus. And in doing so, our words would bring peace, our words would bring freedom, and our words would bring healing. Let's pray together. God, again, I think there's a lot of us that, you know, we hear 
some lyrics, we hear a beautiful poem and we think that's great and that's good for that particular person, but uh, it's easy, I think, for us to discount the weight of our words, the words we use every day in conversations with people at home, with people at work, people at school. And so, God, I pray that we would think about the ways in which we use our words, that we would consider the kind of world that our words are creating, that we would turn from some of the ways in which we use our words carelessly. And again, we may not feel like we're doing destruction, but over time, some of those things can really erode what you're trying to do in our life. So may we accept this invitation to trust Jesus fully, to give all of these things over to you, including the words that we use. May our words reflect what is real and what is true. May our yes be yes and our no, no. And may we use our words to create a world that brings peace and freedom and healing to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.